is time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other wonderful links in the description on Linktree. This week's episode, SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And this is a, a, an extremely uh, interesting topic because it, it goes right to the core of like human curiosity. Yes. Know? And, you know, so it, it's, it's, uh, even though they're, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get into all this. Like, like it, it's so interesting, like, like the potential of, of this topic, you know? Yeah. It's, it's really cool stuff. I figured I'd be doing a couple hours of notes and I've just been taking notes all day yesterday and today. I just, you know, there's just no end to this topic. It's a really good one. This topic was chosen by vote on Patreon. You too can support the show on Patreon. We have three different tiers. You pledge to support the show every month. We have a lower tier, a medium tier, and a high tier. At the lower tier, you get ad-free and early access. No, access and after hours. At the medium tier, you get bonus episodes. And at the top tier, you get to vote on next week's topic. That's right. This was chosen on Patreon. Actually, it was a tie. I'm not going to lie. This was a tie between two different topics. And I said, okay, you guys got me last time. And I did two topics, but I can't do that every week. I just don't have time for it to research two topics. So I flipped a coin and it came up with SETI because this is a good, good topic. And the coin knew this was the one to pick. <laughs> was it uh, both heads on both sides? Yeah, it was the heads I win tells you win kind of tells you lose kind of a flip, you know? Yeah, okay, all right. Trick coin. <laughs> yeah, trick coin. There you go. Anyway, so we are doing SETI. And uh this is yeah, well, we'll get into it, I suppose, here. Um I'll start off, I suppose. We've got so much to talk about, I hardly know where to start. So SETI, the start stands for the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. In general, there are several efforts that have been titled SETI. But in general, it's the effort to find extraterrestrial intelligence, just like it says. The main way this has been done in the past is by monitoring radio waves. But there are other ways to detect alien signals as well that maybe we'll get into a little bit later on. But let's look a little bit about the brief history of, I guess, extraterrestrial signals. And just to preface before we go, uh, apologies in advance. I am still sick and uh, coughing. Hopefully I don't cough too bad. I'm on some medications that the doctor prescribed me so hopefully that helps he i got uh i got a steroid like prednisone i think yeah yeah, yeah. And an inhaler i'm gonna get i'm gonna get fucking ripped guys i'm on steroids just cough cough <laughs> cough all night long yeah it's cough, gonna be cough, awesome cough. it's worse than snoring it's really bad yeah oh it's that's brutal man i haven't been sleeping at all i've been waking up all night and stuff it's horrible that's why like i'm a little bit behind on the podcast because i just been so sick lately I had like I haven't even edited the Westall School one yet, but we'll get that out at some point. It'll be out. Don't worry. Probably not Monday, but it'll be out at some point. Anyways, here we go. Uh, in nineteen no nineteen in eighteen ninety nine, Nikola Tesla 
detected a repetitive static signal that cut off when Mars set on the horizon. Because it cut off when Mars set on the horizon, he believed that it was some sort of signal from Mars. It's unclear what the signal was, but some possibilities are signals from Marconi's European experiments, the misuse of the equipment, or even noise from a moon of Jupiter. There are all sorts of possibilities, but as we know today, it's unlikely that there was anybody on Mars sending radio signals towards Earth. I suppose it's possible it could be, you know, an alien or something that was temporarily stationed there, but most likely not. But that's the first signal I could find that is more or less considered to be a possible ET signal. All right, moving Maybe sub subterranean uh, civilization. No, that is that yeah. actually is true. I did see mention of methane plumes coming off of Mars at some point, so there very well could be a subterranean civilization sending radio signals out. I mean, that's absolutely possible, yeah. And Tesla, you yeah. know, he's a smart guy. We could do a whole episode on him, so if he thinks there's oh, something to it. Multiple. He's on the list. Yep, yep. So anyways... Uh, August 21st to 23rd in 1924. This is really cool, actually. So when Mars was in opposition or closest to Earth, the United States had a National Radio Silence Day, and apparently they organized this like internationally, among allies at least. Now, during this three-day period, all radios went silent for five minutes at the beginning of the hour every hour, and a radio receiver was lifted in a dirigible, like a blimp or something, 3,000 meters high to listen for Martian radio signals. And apparently they recorded some radio signals on film. And the film was, guess what? Confiscated by the government. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, ain't, that, ain't that convenient? It's pretty cool to imagine what these signals could be, uh, you know, assuming that they are from outer space, right? Could they be ETs stationed on Mars or some sort of natural phenomenon or maybe even something we haven't thought of yet? I don't know. There was mention of an article from August 28th of the New York Times that covered the story. And I saw a mention of that elsewhere, you know, people talking about it. And you know me, I like to go to the source material. So I actually found the dang thing, an article from 1924. So here we go. It's a little hard to read, so I apologize and bear with me on that. But here it is. Um, the title looks like it may have gotten cut off a little bit, but anyways... Seeks signed from Mars in 30-foot radio film. Dr. Todd will study photograph of mysterious dots and dashes recently recorded, Washington, August 27th. The development of a photographic film record of radio signals during a period of about 29 hours while Mars was closest to the Earth. The mystery of the dots and dashes reported heard at the same time by widely separated operators of powerful stations. See Francis Jenkins of Washington, inventor of the device, which he calls the Radio No Photo Message Continuous Transmission Machine, <laughs> invented by Dr. David Todd. Does it have an acronym? Hmm. No, but it I mean, should. yeah, you could make one up, I suppose. Yeah, um, sounds like it should. So that would be the RNPMCTM. <laughs> not, yeah, not a great acronym. Yeah, not a very good one. Invented by Dr. David Todd, Professor Emeritus of Astronomy at Amherst and organizer of International Listening In for Signals from Mars to their record. The film, 30 feet long and 6 inches wide, black on white, is a fairly, fairly regular arrangement of dots and dashes along one side. 
But on the other side, at almost evenly spaced intervals, are curiously jumbled groups, each taking the form of a crudely drawn face. I don't think the results have anything to do with Mars, says Mr. Jenkins. Quite likely, the sounds recorded are the result of heterodyning or interference of radio signals. The film shows a repetition at intervals of about half, uh, about a half hour of what appears to be a man's face. It's a freak which we can't explain. So heterodyning is when you combine two or more signals and they interfere with each other. So interference, it's a fancy way of saying interference. And it's just kind of a fun little blurb in the newspaper that proves that, yes, this was a thing. And it was pretty much as reported elsewhere, where you have this anomalous signal that they can't really explain that looks like little happy faces or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm inclined to believe that some prankster may have drawn those on the film, you know, (laughs) the gag. I don't know. It just sort of, you know, the the tomfoolery person in me thinks that that's what might've happened, but I don't know. There's some, while I was skimming through, cause I had to read through or not read through, but I had to skim through. This was not on the front page. So I had to skim through many, many pages to actually find this little blurb and some other headlines from the front page. It caught my eye. Wales loses match in ships. Tug of war. Yale and Harvard youth are stronger on rope. Prince penalized on potato race. <laughs> <laughs> potato race. I don't know. Uh, Duchess asks court to avert eviction. Duke of Westminster had ordered his second wife barred from Borden House. What's that all about? I don't know. Twelve gas. Uh, Twelve gases. Uh, gas is that a typo? Um, perfume plant. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, so no, there's a blast. Twelve gases and blast at perfume plant. A score of others severely affected by chlorine fumes at uh, Del Juan in New Jersey. So there's a perfume plant that had a gaseous blast and it uh, injured people, I guess. So that's kind of weird. And it was very smelly. Yeah. So there's just a couple of other headlines, just random <laughs> stuff. It reminds me of recently, a girlfriend sent me something about a chocolate factory. And unfortunately, when it exploded, it took some people with it. Oh, no. Yeah, that was very recent. That's the most delicious way to go. <laughs> But there was a there's another New York Times article that I could only find an excerpt for, or I could find it on the New York Times, but they wanted you to subscribe in order to read it. So I was like, ah, I don't know, not really worth the subscription. But anyways, it, the title of the article was "Radio Hears Things as Mars Nears Us." A 24 tube set in England picks strong signals made in harsh dots. Vancouver also favored at Washington. The translator of McLean Telegrams stands by to decode any message. So, like the reports say, there are many, or not many, but multiple stations picked up the same or similar signals, which suggests that it was not um, like equipment malfunction and could also suggest a remote point of origin rather than something terrestrial. But we don't have a whole lot of the actual data available to us this day, so it's hard to interpret and this was back when radio was still fairly new. It was, I wouldn't say it was in its infancy at this point, but it was not as sophisticated as it would later become. So that was just a really early, like that was just a really cool thing. I was especially excited to find the actual article in the New York Times. So let's run forward a little bit to 1960 when Frank Drake ran Project Ozma. He used a radio telescope 85 feet in diameter to look at Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani near the one 
0.42 gigahertz frequency. Now we'll hear this again and again in this episode. This frequency is called the waterhole frequency. It gets its name because it's a very quiet band of the spectrum. The wavelengths are between 18 and 21 centimeters. This band is quiet because, uh, here's a quote, the strongest hydroxyl radical spectral line radiates at 18 centimeter and atomic hydrogen at 21 centimeter, the hydrogen line. These two molecules, which combine to form water, are widespread and interstellar gas, which means this gas tends to absorb radio noise at these frequencies. Therefore, the spectrum between these frequencies forms a relatively quiet channel in the interstellar radio noise background. So there's these uh, frequency spectrums, or I mean, um, spectral lines. You, you remember what those are, Agent Ether? Yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, you remember, you remember when, um, when if something gives off light, you can tell by the spectral line what element it is? We did experiments like that in physics lab, I remember. Yeah, so ev- basically every element has a certain frequency. And at this particular wavelength, you have some very common elements that block a lot of the natural background noise, leaving the frequencies wide open for communication. So that's why they think that this would be a fairly likely place to send signals if you were going to send them between planets. Less interference, right? The term was coined in 1971 by Bernard M. Oliver. He believed that the watering hole would be an obvious band for interstellar communications. And the name is sort of a pun. A watering hole is a place where people meet and talk to each other. So this would be the interstellar watering hole in that this is a likely place for interstellar people to meet and talk to each other on radio frequencies. So Project Ozma didn't really find anything, but they did have a false alarm that turned out to be a high-flying aircraft. (laughs) Unfortunately, they didn't discover a whole lot. But, you know, they did lead, you know, they did discover as far as you know, advancing science, I guess. There was a Project Ozma 2 that used a 300-foot telescope. Patrick Palmer and Benjamin Zickerman monitored 670 nearby stars between 1972 and 1976. They looked around the 21-centimeter area or the spectral line of hydrogen. They didn't really find anything either, as far as I could tell. Now, the Russians had their own SETI program that started in the 60s, One of the scientists involved wrote a book titled Universe Life Intelligence that was Losef Shklovsky, and that was expanded on by Carl Sagan into Intelligent Life in the Universe, which became a bestseller. I I wanted to look into the Russian program a little bit more, but I just didn't have time because there was so much to look at here for this case. I just, I ran out of time, guys. I was taking notes until about half an hour ago, (laughs) you know. And then I, ha- I ran to the store to get, guess what, ETA? Some beer? Some Pliny. It's right down the street, man. I could just go. Oh, you, you always put the, you, you always, <laughs> you know, I'm actually, right now I'm drinking out of a Pliny uh, uh, the Elder glass, but I'm drinking Boddington's out of it. Ha. <laughs> so. Yeah. The, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a different type of beer. It's not, you know, it's not Pliny the Elder. The store but, down the I'll, street has it in stock, so I can just drive down there anytime I want. Whole Foods. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Anyways, I guess while we're on the topic of alien signals, we have to mention the wow signal. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. We, uh, we talked about <laughs> this one previously, but it, it's, it's probably the most famous one. 
So Ohio State University got a $71,000 grant, which is about $700,000 today. And they used this to build the Big Ear Radio Observatory Telescope. The Ohio State University SETI program became the world's first ongoing attempt to listen for extraterrestrial signals. And on August 15, 1977, Jerry Eman noticed an unusually strong signal. The signal, known as 6EQUJ5, is the best ever candidate for extraterrestrial communication, or so some people believe, but we'll talk about a couple of other signals later on. Um, However, it was only ever heard once. If it's an artificial signal, it would repeat, or so they say. That's what they, you know, scientists expect. But that assumes a stationary source. If it was from a moving source, then of course it wouldn't repeat. Now, attempts to explain the signal as man-made or natural have all failed. Whatever it was, it was definitely strange, and to this day, it's unexplained. Unfortunately, the technology of the time was fairly primitive by today's standards. The signal itself was not recorded. 6EQUJ5 is a recording of the signal's intensity. The scale went from 0 to 10 and used letters after that. So unfortunately, there's no information about the signal or what the signal contained, only the intensity of the signal. We don't know if it was modulated, if it was a message or whatever. And that's kind of really frustrating. On the other hand, it's a fun mystery, you know. Didn't they do something on the X-Files where they got another wow signal? Remember that episode? There was a, yeah, there was a signal where he went to the Arecibo Observatory. Yeah. And he got some sort of alien transmission there. That was pretty cool. That was Mm -hmm. a fun one. Pretty creepy, right? Yeah. I like that was that was a fun episode. But okay, so where was I next? Okay, here we go. Sorry, guys, I'm kind of out of it. Like I said, I'm sick. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, the US Planetary Society we'll talk about next, which was founded by Carl Sagan and others in 1980. Part of their mission was SETI. They did a lot of other stuff too. They're still around and have about sixty thousand members around the world. Their mission is quoted as empowering the world's civilizations to advance space science and exploration. They've done some of their own experiments, such as sending microorganisms into space to see if they could survive. And, you know, that's, that's how we get supervillains, people. <laughs> Start <laughs> yeah. off with a couple of amoebas, you know, pretty soon the world gets taken over. Well, and actually, I think what you're, tar- you're talking about, which is what one of the things I was uh, planning on talking about is tardigrades. And I know that we have mentioned tardigrades uh, on the on this channel before, but uh, tardigrades might be one of those uh, microscopic beings. They may actually be aliens. Some some scientists, uh, you know, they, they theorize that you know tardigrades may have actually came to this planet on the backs of uh, comets or meteorites or what have you. And the reason why they they theorize this is because of like the the great tolerances in temperature, either high temperatures or low temperatures, that uh, they're able they're able to withstand. And um, tardigrades are, are are very very interesting microscopic creatures. Um, they have a couple different nicknames: uh, moss moss piglets and water bears. <laughs> but but uh, they can pretty much I mean they they can be observed like in a low light like a microscopic microscopic uh, or microscope whatever sorry <laughs> but like 
the the reason why um like that they are so very interesting is they're they're found all over the world and like like i said before these might very well be aliens on on our uh, the surface of our planet or not just on the surface of our planet um there's there's very many uh biospheres that um tardigrades are found in they're found on like you know on the top of mountains that they're they're found in like the deep sea and tropical rainforests uh, in in the antarctic as well you know that they're they're extremely interesting microscopic uh, creatures and they have um extreme extreme like resilience um even nasa has taken tardigrades out into the the uh, vacuum of space released them into the vacuum of space and they brought them back in uh, the international space station and then rehydrated them um and then they 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 still were able to live you know so the reason why some scientists uh, theorize that that like a tardigrade might actually be an alien not originating from this planet at least is because the tolerances in which this uh this creature is able to survive is well beyond any of the tolerances that you you're going to be able to experience on this planet so they don't think that like you know there's no reason why it should be able to withstand the tolerances you know that that it is it's able to, you know what I mean? Yeah, well, so, some scientists, you know, they think all life, all life on the planet Earth is comes from, like, outside our solar system, like, from things like meteorites yeah. that have different uh, bacteria and so forth on them. Yeah, I've heard that well, theory I, before, I, yeah. Yeah, and, and that, that's, an, that's a, an uh, interesting notion because we don't know where, like, you know, life came from necessarily on this planet. You know, I mean, we have a good idea, I think, possibly, but like, uh, as far as like, you know, at the very simplest level of uh, the, the beginnings of life, you know, um, who knows where they came from? You know, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's definitely possible that, you know, it, it's, uh, it could have been, you know, one of those uh, ideals like um, uh, panspermia, the transfer of life from one planet to another. Like as far as like bacteria goes or what have you, you know, like that, that, that's probably likely the beginning of life on any planet, you know? Well, uh, and yeah, there's a, there's this guy, Tomonori Totan. He's at the University of Tokyo and uh, he recently published this paper about space dust. So very small, microscopic sort of um, particles that come from impacts on other planets. So those impacts mm -hmm. create these, these dust particles that move at great speeds throughout space and end up on our planet, um, maybe in the Antarctic where they're preserved. And he thinks we have the technology to detect these small objects. He says there's like 100,000 pieces each year that fall, fall to Earth. Really? Yeah. Huh. That's mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah, and it surprised me because we're talking about like fractions of a millimeter, just big enough to have like a single-celled organism. Right, but and it's... That would be life. Theoretically possible. We could have extraterrestrial life visiting us right now. Right now. <laughs> All over yeah, the planet. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily in like uh, intelligent extraterrestrial life, 
you know, but it's it not, you know, like, but it's still life though. They, they may not have originated on this planet. It feels like, like a, about, it feels like a stepping stone to me, you know, because we haven't yeah. found anything currently. I wouldn't say anything. Well, like we've talked about previously, there's those fossils from Mars, from the Mars rock. There's, um, gases in Venus that shouldn't be there. And there's other, like, there are other speculations and evidence for life. We haven't found a smoking gun yet, but they have found evidence. Yeah. Well, I, I'm of the opinion that, like, we don't necessarily understand life necessarily as far as, like, what life really means. You know, like, like, like the, like, the, there might be, like, multiple different platforms on which life can originate, which it can develop. You know, and, and like, uh, just, just because like, like, you know, what we know as life as like carbon based life forms or whatever, that doesn't mean that like everything as far as like life or intelligence or any kind of life form, that doesn't mean that it has to be based on carbon. I mean, there, there might be multiple different life form, life forms that, you know, are, are existing in the, you know, the, the universe that we just, I mean, don't understand, you know, I mean, and, and also, like, like for example, like, like with the SETI program and stuff, like how much, like, like uh, the different radio transitions or transmissions that we have sent out towards like potential targets and stuff like that to try to like reach out and communicate with other potential life forms. Who knows if, if uh, from their perspective, whether they're going to be able to even understand that, you know what I mean? Like, like if they might, they might be doing the same thing, but in a different way that like we don't even understand and vice versa, you know, like, like it's who knows what perspective uh, other life forms may have, you know? So um, I, I still think that like the, the effort being put towards reaching out and in like a trying to contact other life forms and intelligent life forms is still worth it. I think it, it, it is and it isn't. Because also, like, you don't know what their perspective is. Like I just said, um, it might be a bad idea, you know, like to, to put yourself out there and, you know, to, to let everybody else out there know, hey, here I am. This is what we are. You know, like, who knows what their perspective is? Like, uh, could they be peaceful or maybe they might be a conquering race? You know what I mean? Like, and then, like, we just gave them our, our coordinates, you know, and. Who knows? They might be on their way towards us. But I mean, that's another thing too. Like, 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 I think that's kind of unlikely because of the the, the vast expanses of space. You know, like, uh, there's, there's some extremely long distances that other life forms would have to travel in order to get to us. So, I mean, unless there's like, you know, obviously, unless there's like other technology that we're just not privy to. You know, like we just don't know anything about. You know that maybe they can travel long distances in a you know blink of an eye, a blink of an eye or something. You know what I mean? Like like it's who knows who knows what kind of technology there is out there. You know what I mean? Well, that's the thing about the Drake equation is it makes a lot of assumptions that whatever's out there, or whatever might be out there, is a lot like us. Basically, you know that they live in the same habitable planet like earth that we do and they have similar technology etc so when you're doing these calculations which which we discussed on a different episode it it really does make a lot of assumptions about how to define intelligent life 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And I never like necessarily, I mean, the, the Drake equation is it's a thought experiment, right? Yes. And it, it was intended as a thought experiment, but I never like when people take it too literally, you know, they use it as a, as if it can give you an actual answer one way or the other, but it cannot ever give you an answer because we just don't have the data. You know, it's like people will use things like the Drake yeah. equation or like um, Occam's razor that is almost always used incorrectly anyways, but they'll use things like this to say, well, here's an answer for you because of this idea, but you really have no way of knowing unless you go get the hard evidence yourself, you know, unless you go yeah. to that place and can observe for yourself whether or not there's any life there. That's the only way to get an answer. Equations you know, and probabilities and all this stuff, none of that is going to give you an answer. And that's why they spend so much resources doing stuff like SETI and other, you know, similar efforts. Getting back to it, by the way, to, you know, SETI. In 1983, a new technology called Suitcase SETI was deployed to look for signals. Unlike previous attempts that were fairly limited, New technology allowed the device to search 131,000 narrowband channels. They used it with the 85-foot radio telescope at Oak Ridge Observatory in Harvard, Massachusetts. Even though this new capability blew previous attempts out of the water as far as data collection goes, they wanted more. And next they came up with Project Meta. Mechanical, or no, Mega Channel Extraterrestrial Assay has nothing to do with Facebook. In uh, 1985, this new spectrum analyzer was capable of 8.4 million channels with a resolution of 0.05 hertz. It used the Doppler shift to tell the difference between terrestrial signals and those from off-planet. And this was partially funded by Steven Spielberg. Really? And the Planetary Society was involved as well. The planetary, you know, the one I mentioned earlier with uh, Carl Sagan's people. Yeah, and Steven Spielberg, he's, he doesn't just make movies about aliens. You get the impression that he's like a closet Dan Aykroyd. To my knowledge, he hasn't been as vocal about it, but this guy is pretty much balls deep in the alien stuff, as far as I can mm-hmm. tell. Um, now, Meta well, 2... He's not, he, yeah. he's not like... A, he, he doesn't b- believe everything that he hears, though, kind of like Aykroyd, Aykroyd does. Yeah, no, yeah. Ak- yeah Ak- and, and, Aykroyd is... Dan Aykroyd is... He believes literally anything, yeah, but... So Meta 2 followed in Argentina to scan the skies above the southern hemisphere because, you know, you can't see everything from each place, obviously. There's things in each hemisphere that are exclusive. All right, so next we had Beta, B-E-T-A, or Billion Channel Extraterrestrial Assay. And that was uh, operated on, or that opened on October 30th, 1995. It could watch 250 million channels with a resolution of 0.5 hertz. It looked in the microwave spectrum from 1.4 to 1.72 gigahertz. And it looked in two second intervals at different frequencies. And if it saw something weird, it automatically went back to look again. So it didn't require somebody to come back a week later or a month later and try to scan the area again to try to catch the signal a second time. And that's a very, very important innovation because... A signal may not repeat indefinitely forever. Scientists, that's what they're hoping to find. They're hoping to find a signal that comes from a planet indefinitely or something like that. 
But what if it's, you know, a spaceship that's just visiting for a few minutes and then taken off because there's mm-hmm. nothing here that they're interested in or whatever. There's any number of reasons why you would only hear a radio signal for, you know, a day or an hour or something. So that's a, that was a really important innovation. It had two different beams slightly offset and a signal candidate would pass both beams at the same speed as Earth's rotation, indicating that it's a distant transmission and not something terrestrial. And it also had a third sensor that scanned the horizon for terrestrial signals to rule out interference. Unfortunately, the telescope that Meta, Beta, and Sentinel were attached to was damaged in 1999, and those projects ceased operation. So this one didn't run for too many years, but still, I didn't really see that they had detected anything when I was reading about it, but um, they didn't talk about It's hard to find the data from what these things were detecting anyways. So NASA, as you might imagine, had been involved with various SETI efforts starting in the late 1960s. They worked with Project Orion, the Microwave Observing Project, the High Resolution Microwave Survey, and toward other planetary systems. They started their own serious program in 1992, but it was canceled by Congress a year later. The SETI Institute, a private nonprofit, took over some of NASA's efforts. And it was canceled. You can look this up online, you know, the public speeches. But I'm guessing basically there wasn't enough pork in the program for the politicians, you know. <laughs> we can't our, we can't line our own pockets with this. Get rid of it, you know. We need stuff we can get rich of, rich <laughs> off of. The NASA Microwave Observing Program or MOP was well, that you know that's their problem right there. Is their their acronym is MOP? Nobody's <laughs> going to better acronyms. Yeah, you, you can't sell MOPs. You, you know that's not exciting. You want to look for MOPs in outer space? Okay, buddy, you know. Anyways, MOP was a promising program using antennas at multiple sites, but uh, it was, you know, shut down, unfortunately, before it really was able to accomplish too much. It was later restarted by the SETI Institute as Project Phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes type of a thing. Oh, yeah. Project Phoenix ran from 1996 to 1998. Unlike other projects, it did not search a wide area but targeted known nearby stars in a 200 light year range other a lot of other SETI attempts have gone and tried to target you know as many different points in the sky as possible but this one was looking at just known stars they used the park's 210 foot radio telescope in south wales and the uh South Wales and Australia, and the largest single-dish radio telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. They observed 200 stars that are not visible in the Northern Hemisphere for about 16 weeks. And next, they looked at stars in the Northern Hemisphere from the 140-foot telescope in Green, uh, Greenbank, West Virginia. In 1998, Phoenix moved to the Arecibo Telescope. This telescope, at the time, was the largest in the world by far at 1,000 feet, had a very high demand for use, so they only got it for two sessions a year for three to four weeks a session, and this ended in 2004. And by the way, this is you know really, really unfortunate, but the Arecibo Telescope, which I always thought of so, as sort of like, I don't know, a scientific cultural icon, it was just, I mean, that it was just a really badass telescope. It uh, died a horrible, horrible death. <laughs> I showed Agent Ether earlier the video. Yeah. Talk about a wow. 
<laughs> yeah, that was a catastrophic wow. You can look it up. A cable failed, and the the um, antenna part of it's like suspended above the dish. I'm not sure what the technical term for that was. Was that the one in Costa Rica? Uh, yeah, no, Puerto. I think it was in Puerto Rica. Let me see. Let me, let me Puerto Rico. The, Puerto Rico. Yeah, I think that's okay, where it was. Let me yeah. look it up just to make sure. I okay. feel like I remember okay, hearing yeah, that. No, it's important. No, you're right. I got the mistaken. It's amazing to me because when I was little, you know, you want to look through a telescope, you want to see like the rings of Saturn and the moons of Jupiter and look at different galaxies that are far away. And really, they use telescopes to try and find exoplanets, to look for life, to detect things on the infrared spectrum. It's not just about, you know, the pretty pictures we're getting from the James Webb telescope. Right. No, exactly right. Yeah. And in fact, um, the, I think that the radio telescopes in general, minus the fact that you don't get an actual picture from them, provide far more valuable data than a lot of the um, just the regular light telescopes. I mean, you can get a lot of stuff from those radio telescopes that you cannot observe through light. That's true. But I think that people find those inspiring. Oh, yeah. You know, you can talk about collecting data and radio waves and searching for light and imaging the first black hole, but there's something about visualizing things that are, you know, so far away that they're beyond our comprehension. Right, like yeah. Distances you can't mm -hmm. fathom, you know, amounts of time that you can't cross or travel. Space is really big. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, just just you using your imagination, like like just thinking about like what could possibly be out there, because I, I agree fully with the notion that we're, there's no way we're alone, you know, in, in the universe. You know, maybe in our solar system. Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, whether there have been other, you know, uh, civilizations that have potentially lived on other planets or, or even on our own planet before, you know, much more before the accepted timeline of, uh, you know, what we have right now. Um, but I think that like throughout the universe, like throughout different solar systems and stuff, there's no way, dude, there's, there's no way that there's not other, at least life forms out there, whether they be intelligent or not, whether they be advanced as us or not, I, I think that there's there's endless potential out there for you know much more advanced societies to be in existence out there somewhere. You know, right? What I, mean? I, I I think that some like you know we we think of ourselves as being you know like advanced and and you know we know so much about the you know our surroundings and stuff, but I mean it it's quite possible that like we're infants, you know, we, we don't, we don't know a damn thing, you know, compared to potential other civilizations. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah, we, I, I feel like we're still very, very primitive. Just look at, I don't know, everything from our medical technology where, you know, oh, you have pain, take a pill. Like they don't know how to actually fix it, you know, or like just yeah. are, are flying around. Like we barely learned how to fly like a hundred years ago. We've barely made any progress, yeah. you know? So imagine yeah. our, if we don't kill ourselves a thousand years from now, what kind of technology will we have developed? And we already have yeah. a lot of really, really neat scientific ideas. You know, they will say, like, for example, one of the big SETI characters is Seth Shostak. 
And I went to, I saw him at a talk at uh, AlienCon, and he argued that you can't go from, and you can't, you can't travel the stars because it takes too much energy. And then he showed some yeah. calculations using chemical rockets from the 1950s, essentially. It's like, dude, yeah, no shit. Nobody's traveling the stars in chemical rockets from the 1950s. Yeah, that's, it would take, it would take very different that's, technology. That's the, stupid. The, the but you distan- know the distances that we're talking by, about would just not be realistic. By the same token, I'm not going to try to drive to Canada on on my kid's tricycle. It's stupid. Nobody's going to do that, right? So you develop better yeah. technology like an automobile or take a train or an airplane. Like nobody's going to try to get there on like uh, on a covered wagon these days. It's just it's dumb. But and mm-hmm. that's what they're, that's basically what his argument was as well. We can't take a covered wagon because it just won't go that far. You're like, yeah, no shit. It won't go that far. But if you just think about like, for example, we talked about on a previous episode that from the perspective of something traveling the speed of light, it can go anywhere in the universe instantaneously, according to our science. Now, according to our science, you cannot accelerate to the speed of light, but what if we don't know everything there is to know about science. And there is a species who is so far advanced that they can traverse not just worlds or stars, but entire galaxies or even the entire universe. I believe that there is a species well, that's you know a, a million years ahead of us. Look at the age of stars. It's possible that there's a species yeah. a million years ahead of us technologically that would have the technology to do so. I think that that's very possible, and therefore it's somewhat possible that they visited us. You know, it's sort of just a simple argument, but maybe it's yeah. naive even, but I don't know. That's kind of how I see things. I think well, even if you have the, like... What's the difference? Ad- what, what's the difference between distance and also parallel dimensions? You know what I mean? Like, like, like if you could travel within like a, you know, an upgraded level of a, a dimension, then... You know, you, you could potentially travel long distances, extreme dis- distances um, in the blink of an eye, you know. And uh, if, if they have, uh, you know, if an intelligent species has, has traversed, you know, the third, fourth, and fifth, you know, dimensions, then who knows what they could be, they could be cap- capable of, you know. I like the idea that there might be a civilization that's, let's say, more advanced than us, maybe not millions of years advanced, but advanced enough to where they understand that civilizations will reach a point where they will be broadcasting into space and at the simplest level, the simplest technological level, they're going to, to be searching for radio waves. So it's not just us searching for radio waves, it's who is transmitting them and why. And I think it's because you can detect them, like if you're a young civilization. So it's not even necessarily, you know, that you're going to find a planet full of aliens, of extraterrestrials that are just like us because they've been, you know, transmitting these these radio waves. They could still be a lot different. Yeah. There's, yeah, there's, all sorts of this this is where this topic gets really fun is when you get into sort of speculating like that you know like we don't know it's a mm-hmm. mystery but it's really fun just to ask what if you know all right back to project phoenix so they looked at 2 billion channels for each star that they looked at and in march 2004 
it was announced that they failed to find any evidence of signals. Project leader Peter Bacchus said, We live in a quiet neighborhood. It wasn't all a waste of time, however. For example, Jill Tarter and Margaret Turnbull, who worked in the project, developed a catalog of nearby habitable systems, or HabCat. It has about 17,000 stars listed. And I'm pretty sure you can, I found a mention of it online. I didn't look at the actual catalog, but I think you can Google it and find the actual catalog online if you want to peruse, you know, stars that are habitable, potentially. (laughs) Data. Yeah. Data. So let's talk a little bit about the SETI Institute that we mentioned a little bit. This is a privately funded nonprofit organization founded in 1984. They've done tons of stuff, but we'll talk, we won't, can't possibly talk about everything in this episode. Otherwise, it would go really, really long. But uh, one thing that a lot of people get confused on, though, is that they have government funding, which they do not. They are completely privately funded. Now, here's what they say. And they have an, they are an effort to detect evidence of technological civilizations that may exist elsewhere in the universe, particularly in our galaxy. There are potentially billions of locations outside our solar system that may host life. With our current technology, we have some ability to discover evidence of cosmic habitation and in the specific case of our SETI experiments, to find veins that are at a technological level at least as advanced as our own. Now, probably their biggest and most well-known project is the Allen Telescope Array, and it was built specifically for SETI activities. Most radio telescopes are built for astronomy, but not specifically for for SETI. I mean, you can purpose it for that, sure. It was <laughs> kind of cryptid here. <laughs> He's a... Uh... He was just on my lap, and now he wants back. I guess he jumped off. All right, here we go. Anyways, uh, so the Allen Telescope Array was named after its benefactor, Paul Allen, who is the co-founder of Microsoft. And I was just thinking, man, I want to be a rich dude so I can get like telescope arrays named after me. You know, how cool would that be to have enough money to fund? Uh, a radio telescope. You know what I mean? Well, I wish that's what more people did with their money. Yeah. You know, it used to be that they built libraries and universities and music halls and uh, telescopes. And you don't see that as much anymore. They still do sometimes. Sometimes. They still do, yeah. Or they, instead, they spend $44 billion to buy Twitter. right that's what i'm saying that's exactly what i'm saying (laughs) yeah i mean just think about how much money that is some of these radio telescopes we're talking about cost between 1 million and 20 million dollars to build 44 billion dollars for twitter to advance society in some (laughs) in any way but no yeah for twitter guys Oh, if you had $44 billion, would you spend it on Twitter? Nope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, what are you going to do with the other $43.5 billion? (laughs) You can't can't spend it all. You literally cannot spend it all, you know? You got yachts, vacation houses. It's so much money. It's crazy. All right, well, let's get back to, to the SETI Institute. So it's so that, yeah, the Allen Telescope, it's planned to have, um, and individual dishes that are the equivalent to a single dish that's 100 meters in diameter. Currently, it only has 42 operational dishes, 
and the plans are for an eventual 350 6.1 meter dishes, but completing the array will depend on further funding. Now, the current array is operational, so it still does stuff even though it's not to its planned capacity. The full array will allow multiple observers simultaneous access. Oh, that's a big one. Yeah. Because right now you have limited access and everybody has to not only share it, but pay for it. Right. So instead of just one beam, the array allows for multiple beams. It currently is in use 12 hours a day, seven days a week to search for signals. From 2007 to 2015, the ATA, which is what they call it, you know, Allen Telescope Array, ATA, identified hundreds of millions of technological signals. What? So they found a lot of candidates, apparently. So far, all of these signals have been assigned the status of either noise or radio frequency because A, they appear to be generated by satellites or Earth-based transmitters, or B, they disappeared before the threshold limit of one hour. I was like, huh. Okay, so if you don't, I mean, a radio signal of an hour, less than an hour, they ruled all of those out? Maybe they're being just a little bit too restrictive here with how they filter out their results. Well, there's a lot of information that they have to deal with. So, I mean, and there's a lot of like, uh, like interfering, like, you know, like a stuff that they have to that figure out too. I think, you know, like, I so think like, they're assuming that whoever would be trying to communicate with us would be sending out a constant stream of data would be sending out a constant signal. I don't think it's that we're going to accidentally pick up some planet's radio waves. I think the idea is that they're actively sending out those frequencies so that we can find them. But that assumes that they're beaming a message directly at us. What if well, we're which picking doesn't up doesn't seem to be the case. What if we're picking up a like signal recently. That was not intended for us, but we just so happened to catch it. I don't, I find that, that unlikely. More likely. Well, and I, even I actually, I disagree. Even, even our attempts, I'm getting a little ahead of the episode when my notes are, but even our attempts to send out messages, we don't send out messages the same way we look for them. Like the Arecibo message was sent out once <laughs> for a short period of time. Yeah, and that's well, and, it. And towards they're usually like when, when when we send out a message, it's usually towards a specific target. So it'll take some time to actually reach that target. You I, know, so the the best thing we can we can do is like sit there and listen. I think. You I know? think. Like, yeah, and, I think our efforts and our funding right now are focused on listening, not on sending. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, they, they have they have sent a fair bit of messages out. But that's a little controversial in and of itself. I'll get to that a little bit later. But my point was that like the Arecibo message was not a repeating message. We sent it out once and once only, and we did not continue to send it out. So if we had received that message, the exact same or similar message, we would have discarded it for being too short to be a real yeah, signal. And what, that's what and I mean when I, I think that they're being too restrictive with their, for, with their criteria from, here. From what I understand, I think by the time that message like reaches its uh, target, it will be like 2030 or something like that. Something like that. 
The Arecibo so message? Like, no, they they sent it to something that, really far maybe away. I'm thinking about a different. No, they sent that oh, okay. to a globular club. Let me see. Was it Bo Message? They sent it really far away. I forget the exact cluster. It's a globular cluster, I think. Um, yeah, glob- globular cluster Messier 13 in 1974, which is, um, let me click on it here. Messier 13 is, uh, how far away is this? So I was thinking about the uh, the message the message that we sent to a Centurion. What is it? What was it called? The the closest solar system to us that may possibly Proxima have like a Proxima Centauri. A Proxima Centauri. Yeah. 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 So it, we have uh, sent. Yeah, they would definitely have gotten our radio signals by now. I think Proxima Centauri. I forget the exact number. It's something like three or four light years away. I think it's four. So yeah, something like that. It's not that far so let me see um distance i mean it's it's a it's a it's a long distance like like but like it's not as far as interstellar interstellar travel what have you oh no i'm i'm wrong actually so they sent the globular cluster they sent it to is uh 22 light years away so it's a lot closer than i thought it was m13 is okay we're not talking about the gang here people according to wikipedia it's only 22 light years away and they sent it in the 70s, so it would definitely be there by now. I so, think yeah. you can uh, oh. look at that one in the telescope and see something very pretty. Yeah. We should get a better telescope. Yeah, uh, we should. You mean a telescope? Yeah, we don't have a telescope. We've so. got binoculars to like look at the lunar surface with our kids. I've, I've, looked, I've looked into that, and I've, like, I don't know exactly what to get. I really, really want to get like a high-quality telescope or something to where at least I can go moon, moon watch. Mm-hmm. I've know, got go, a friend... Like, and she said she has a really nice telescope, and we're going to take the kids out in the summer to some remote location and make a night of it. With that would be cool. Hot chocolate yeah, and it's gonna stargazing. Be awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. But not right yeah, now because it be won't really stop cool. raining. Yeah, it never. St- <laughs> it yeah. just won't stop. It's continuous. We have another atmospheric river coming through, and I feel like this water is nowhere you know, to go. In the, in the in the desert where I live, I wish I had that problem. To be quite honest. Like, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I it has rained a little bit here, and uh, yeah. there has been, you know, there's a lot of weeds that have come up. I'm, I'm having to do a lot of weeding in my yard and stuff. But here's the thing: uh, I will typically bring out like my propane torch uh, and just freak out my neighbors. Like, I'll do it at nighttime, you know, <laughs> for the weeds. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. I don't I'll, think I'll I bring can get out, away like, with that. In- Fire country. Oh, you here. Can, oh, in Arizona you can. Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. Like where where I live, like I'll I'll, I'll bring out my my uh, propane torch in a five gallon propane tank, and I'll just light my hill on fire. I looked you know, out my like, window last night and I saw a spaceman setting my neighbor's yard on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's not much to light to light on fire here. You know what I mean? Like there, there it's the it's the the desert. You know, it, it, it's a very majestic desert. Gonna but, burn some you know, rocks. We're also, That's the Havasu accent, yeah, right? That's how people sound, well, sound there? Havasu? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I, I guess you could say that, you know, yeah. Yeah, but uh, no, it's like, it's not that big of a deal. There's nothing, there's really nothing to light on fire here. You're not going to be lighting any structures on fire. You know, you, there's not very much brush. Like, it's it's, it's the desert, dude. Like, like so it, it's not, there's not much growing here. You know, so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll bring out that torch every once in a while when I need to do uh, weed control. You know. Speaking of, we recently went on vacation to um, Arizona 
we went to the Sedona region, to Flagstaff, to the Grand Canyon. It was great. And one of the things we went to was the Sedona Vortices, which I'm going to do a quick little bonus episode on that when I get a chance. But um, I was reading that actually there are vortices near Lake Havasu City, believe it or not. What is a vortice? What is that? I'm not familiar. it's It's a place where you experience earth energy. Yeah, higher levels of energy that are mystical on some level and... Huh. can affect you spiritually. Yeah. So when, next time I go visit you, ETA, we got to go check out some vortices. Because okay. why not? Hell yeah. They're I'm in your down. neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about Serendip, the search for extraterrestrial radio, radio emissions from nearby developed intelligent populations. Oh, there's a, there's a acronym for you. This one was started yeah. at UC Berkeley. And this project piggybacks on other telescope projects rather than using its own dedicated telescope time. Berkeley has a lot going on as far as the search for extraterrestrial Mm -hmm. intelligence. I feel like it's a hot point. Yeah, they definitely have a lot going on there. Yeah. But this one, they are able to lower their funding needs because they just put their equipment on a radio telescope and then whatever somebody else looks at, they record that as well. And they just look for stuff their own way. So it's a really cost-effective way of getting some radio time, some telescope time, you know, and it generates a ton of data that you might not otherwise be able to get. So it's a pretty awesome idea. They usually look, again, towards the cosmic watering hole that we talked about earlier to try to find signals. This effort has been running since about 1979 in one form or another, Most recently, they had Serendip 5 and 6 at the Arecibo and Green Bank telescopes. Oh, and again, if you want to see the Arecibo, Google Arecibo telescope failure or something like that. It is spectacular. But they're interested in um, detecting FRB, fast radio bursts, among other things. So far, they've found over 400 suspicious signals, but they haven't concluded that any of them are hard proof of an ET signal. They're just sort of candidates. One of the more prominent sources or one of the more prominent candidates is SHGB02 plus 14A. I'll just call it SHB. (laughs) It was discovered by SETI at home in March of 2003, and it was originally detected by the Arecibo telescope and observed three times for a total of about one minute. And it was at 1420 megahertz in the watering hole. The source of the signal was between the constellations of Pisces and Aries. There are no stars within a thousand light years in that specific direction. The signal was very weak and had a rapid drift between 8 and 37 hertz per second. SETI at home has denied the media reports that it's an ET signal. They say it could be a random artifact, cosmic noise, or even some kind of glitch. Because every time one of these signals gets detected, the news jumps all over it and says, we found it, guys. We found the aliens. And then the scientists, they always come out and say, all right, hold on, hold on a second, guys. We don't even know what this is yet. We haven't had a chance to look at it. We want to investigate it and see what it is and rule out things. Unfortunately, you have a 
bunch of people working on these projects and someone always leaks something always. to the media. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of letting the scientists take their time and analyze the data, double check things, figure out what's going on, draw some conclusions, and then they're expected to immediately have an answer for these signals. Right. And then the scientists say, oh, you're going to have to give us a few months or a year or That's two. That's right. Wait until we publish. <laughs> yeah. To publish because it's not easy. We're talking about really complicated science type stuff here. And they also have to rule out, you know, satellites and terrestrial vehicles and airplanes and, you know, TV transmissions. And there's all sorts of mess all over the radio transmission spectrum. So you have to do a lot of work, I'm guessing. To It's not like you just press a button that filters out all the stuff. You have to check a lot of stuff, you know? So that's that's why it's so problem some, problematic. Some buttons are pushed. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> and filter stuff out. Oh, yeah, they, they do have automatic filtering, and there are certain things, certain characteristics of the signal that I mentioned some of them earlier that say, you know, certain characteristics like if you have a single fixed point, like let's say for the um for the wow signal, and it gets as the 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 radio telescope looked at a fixed point in the sky, the signal got louder and quieter as it swept the sky. That means that it probably was coming from space. Hey, Ozzy Mima's here. What's up, Ozzy Mima? Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. All right, where was I? Before I have to edit out that coughing fit. So returning here, if it if it sounds like something got cut out from the episode, that's why I was coughing. <clears throat> All right, I was talking about SETI at home. And uh, this particular signal, there are a couple of stars within a hundred light years that are in the general vicinity of the signal. For example, L one one five nine sixteen is only fourteen point six light years away, and it's in the ballpark of where this signal generated. But they think it's not like it's not close enough to where the signal came from for it to be from there. It's just sort of in that general area. Now I mentioned fast radio bursts. This is a transient radio pulse anywhere from a fraction of a millisecond to three seconds. Their cause is unknown, but it must be something with high energy. They're extremely energetic, putting out about the same energy in a millisecond as our sun puts out in three days. They either don't repeat or repeat irregularly. Only so far have they found one that repeats regularly, <coughs> which is FRB. 180916. The full name for this, I guess, is FRB 180916.J01586565 or R3 was discovered in 2018. It came from a galaxy about 457 million light years away. Oh, look at that. Oh, oh, that's super cute. Our cryptids are just being too cute there. There, I have to I have to take a picture for the Discord. They, oh, they stopped. Never mind. They stopped being cute. One, uh, one cryptid is trying to sleep, and the other one is trying to groom him. He's giving him the licks, and it's super adorbs. <laughs> All right. So this signal is unique in that it repeats, uh, it repeats every sixteen point three five days, and it also has a cycle. So it goes off four times and then takes a twelve day break. Kind of weird, and it's it just boggles my mind that they can detect something from 457 million light years away. That's pretty crazy, right? But here's, here's a quote from Wikipedia about this particular burst. 
The four-day radiation burst is not homogenous. All right, from, from Wikipedia. The four-day radiation burst is not homogenous, but is instead characterized by a pattern of sub-bursts. The pattern of radiation activity within the four-day bursts is never exactly repeated. However, there is enough similarity, i.e. alignment of the sub-bursts from period to period, to suggest that they form a part of an original repeating pattern with internal structure of some complexity that has undergone distortion in the intervening 457 million years and 5 billion trillion kilometers. In March 2021, astronomers reported that the area producing pulses of FRB 108916 is about 1 kilometer in scale, based on the studies at extremely short timescales. So, we have something that's coming from 457 million light years away, and they're able to narrow it down to one kilometer? That's insane. Unless I'm completely misreading that, I don't know. (laughs) But, so, nearly all fast radio bursts have been detected from outside the Milky Way, but one was detected from within our own galaxy in 2020, and this is probably what caused COVID. Uh-oh. <laughs> no? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, they actually, they still don't know what causes these things, but they, they do have some speculations. They think that polarized FRBs could come from extremely magnetized sources like neutron stars or more specifically magnetars or maybe black holes. But ET signals are also a possibility. But it, so far, astronomers seem to lean more towards like natural sources it's more of like a speculation kind of a thing. All right, hold on a second here. Toby, knock it off. What's he doing? I think he wants to play. Oh, he's he's growling and stuff. Apologies. <laughs> um, Toby. Toby, knock it off. Not time to play, dude. He's <laughs> making a ruckus, a little butt. All right. So there is some discussion about the possibility of them being ET signals. I mean, that's, that is, uh, hold on. ET signals are definitely a possibility, but astronomers lean more towards natural sources. And the evidence does point more towards natural sources on this one. But, you know, it is fun to speculate. And also, maybe some technologically advanced race has been able to harness FRBs to communicate. I mean, anything's possible, right? And maybe they've come mm-hmm. up with something that looks similar, but it's not exactly the same that they use for interstellar communication. So there's, I mean, there's a ton on FRBs, like a ton, but that's just kind of a basic little look at them. Toby, I'm going to kick your butt, you little guy. Not really. <laughs> not really. I don't, I don't kick my dog's butts. It's just a figure of speech. So could, could you let Do him it. on your lap, maybe? I'm trying. He's being very I like difficult. I, I got a perfectly good lap over here, but he seems to not want it tonight. But yeah, we could do a whole lot on FRBs, but it's sort of a little bit of a tangent, so I didn't want to spend too much time on it. Now, getting on to more SETI stuff, there is, there was, I guess, a project called SETI at Home, and this was another project tied to the Berkeley SETI program. It's a volunteer program where anybody could donate some computing power to analyze data and search for ET signals. What's up, ETA? I mean, Ether. I was going to talk about that. Oh, you want to talk about Okay, go ahead then. Yeah. Well, I was going to talk about the Breakthrough Listen project. Okay, well, this is more part of Serendip, but did they use it for Breakthrough Listen as well? 
Well, yeah, because they have they have. Uh, I mean, it's still going on where they're where they're using computers. Okay, well, let's do it. Let's hear about data. it. No, it's part and of AI it. also. No, no, go right? do it. Do I want to hear about breakthrough? Listen, that's a very very cool thing. <laughs> I don't know where it fits into your little. It doesn't matter. Timeline. It's all line. It's it's not exactly a timeline. It's just stuff I'm talking about. Oh, okay. So. It, go ahead. Breakthrough Listen has a website, so I am going to read you their description of the project because it's very concise. Okay. <laughs> Breakthrough Listen is the largest ever scientific research program aimed at finding evidence of civilizations beyond Earth. The scope and power of the search are on an unprecedented scale. The program includes a survey of the one million closest stars to Earth it scans the center of our galaxy and the entire galactic plane. Beyond the Milky Way, it listens for messages from the hundred closest galaxies to ours. Wow. The instruments used are among the world's most powerful. They are 50 times more sensitive than existing telescopes dedicated to the search for intelligence. The radio surveys cover 10 times more of the sky than previous programs. They also cover at least five times more of the radio spectrum, and they do it a hundred times faster. They are sensitive enough to hear a common aircraft radar transmitting to us from any of the thousand nearest stars. Dang. We are also carrying out the deepest and broadest ever search for optical laser transmissions. These spectroscopic searches are 1,000 times more effective at finding laser signals than ordinary visible light surveys. They could detect a 100-watt laser, the energy of a normal household bulb, from 25 trillion miles away. Dang. What? Yeah. And I know I didn't get that number wrong because I literally copied and pasted How? into my notes. Isn't that crazy? The website description ends with Listen, as in the Breakthrough Listen project, combines these instruments with innovative software and data analysis techniques. The initiative will span 10 years and commit a total of $100 million. Yep. And where did that money come from? Uh, it was donated, I think. Yeah, I think it was. I forget who donated Let's it all. Let's see. Yuri Milner's Breakthrough Initiative Program. Is that right? I don't know. I've, I think it is. I didn't take extensive notes on this one because you said you were going to do this one. Well, it was donated. Somebody had a lot of money and they said, here, find life. Yeah. I want to well, I want to be known for finding you could, life. Instead of uh instead of buying Twitter, you could donate a hundred million dollars and have forty three point nine billion dollars left over and change the course of human history for yes. a, for a mere one hundred million dollars. So you've talked a lot about radio waves. Uh, now the techno signatures they're looking for are with lasers. So laser communications, which, you know, we use lasers for a lot of everyday tasks, not just blinding people, uh, for example. Dude, lasers, lasers are super sweet, especially when they're on, on the back of like dolphins or, or sharks, you know? Yeah, yeah. Super um, sweet. Like bar scanners, you know, at the supermarket, they have like these different patterns of lines and they represent numbers. And then those numbers are attached to a product database. And so you shine the light on the barcode and the light reflects off and this photoelectric cell detects it. And as the scanner moves past the barcode, 
the cell can generate a pattern of on-off pulses related to the stripes. So the detector is converting laser light into electric signals, which can be analyzed. And that's just a really simple example of how lasers are used to transmit information and to communicate on a technological level. <laughs> Let's see. So it's much faster transmission than radio waves. For example, from Mars, you can detect radio waves, let's say, uh, for nine weeks compared to nine days. They're smaller, they're lighter, and they require less power, so you can send them up into space more easily and cheaper. In 2019, NASA had a proof-of-concept demonstration, and they did a dem demonstration, uh, I think it was the LLCD, where they transmitted data from a spacecraft to the ground station. And that was back in 2013. And it's become a lot more sophisticated since then. That was just like the initial use and proof that you could use lasers for communication in space. Yeah, and I, I read about this briefly. And some people initially thought that lasers would be more or less useless for interstellar communications because... They, they hit interference a lot more easily than, let's say, radio signals. But other people came out later and came up with methods to where that actually that's not true. You could use lasers to travel, to communicate long distance, like interplanetary. Yeah, and the... Um, Toby, get off. <laughs> <clears throat> he's uh, he's being ornery again, he's huh? He's eating my hand. <clears throat> so, Project breakthrough generates more data in one day as SETI does in one year. Wow. Yeah, a lot of data. And that's, that's yeah, that's big AI. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, there's a catalog of everything they want to observe. It's called the Exotica catalog. And like Agent Anderson said, these catalogs are available online and they kind of want to search for a little bit of everything. So they're looking at white dwarves, brown dwarves, black holes, neutron stars, not just, you know, planets or galaxies. They're looking around. They're mm -hmm. looking around. All right. Um, you can actually go online to, I think it's Cal, I think it's Berkeley, UC Berkeley SETI, and they have all the data available for download. Now, don't download it all at once because <laughs> it's a lot of data, but they're working on developing an open source, source software for users that will be available on their site so you can help analyze data, not just using your computer for computing power for the project, but actually as an individual analyzing data, looking for life, life out there. I heard about, I don't know if it's still a thing, but I read in, I think it was in 2011, somebody, oh no. <laughs> oh dear. That's the sound, the sound, uh, or my, my noise removal software is not going to get rid of that. Here's the squeaky. It's a squeaky toy. See, it's not, my software ain't going to take care of that. That's too bad. It's, that's too noisy noise. But anyways, I read about uh, somebody was trying to make a sort of a, an app where you could look at data and try to find patterns. Cause I guess the human brain is good at, good at finding stuff that computer programs. Oh, well, excuse me. 
I guess the brain is good at finding patterns that computer programs have trouble with. So they tried to make it similar to like a video game where you would go through and try to find these patterns. And the scientist in charge, it was, I forget what the lady's name was, but she said something like, you know, imagine if you could listen to a data set like it was music and find patterns that way. And the idea was to try to engage average people who don't have a scientific background so that they could help identify patterns as well, you know, because that's one thing that whether or not they were able to um, achieve anything with SETI at home, which I'm sure Agent Ether will get to, what they did for sure prove was that this um, was a crowdsourcing crowdsourcing these jobs and the computer computing power is absolutely viable. They succeeded beyond their wildest dreams as far as that goes. You too can create an account at einsteinathome.com and it automatically uses your computer once you sign up to be a user. There's nothing to download and it takes part of your computing power and uses it to, to analyze this data. Yeah, and I guess the way it works is that when you're using your computer, most of the time, unless you're using something like a a video game or like an AutoCAD program that is really processor intensive, usually you're only using a fraction, like 10, 20% of your total CPU power because modern day computers are very, very powerful. Like They've gotten really good in the past couple of years. So donating a few extra percentage points to the project, you're not going to notice it at all. And in exchange for doing this, you get credits called cobblestones. I like the sound of that. So the more your computer is being used, and there's specific algorithms to determine how you're awarded these, but you get bragging rights. You can publish them on Facebook. And it kind of reminds me of Bitcoin because it relies on volunteer computers doing work to solve a problem. And you work together on a team or a project. And then some projects like Planet Quest want to allow individuals to name planets discovered using their computers. That would be so cool. What would you name a planet, Agent Ether? Agent Ether. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I would name a planet Xena because... I think they have a planet Xena. No, they, they found a planetoid or a, a big asteroid, member that had like a... At a little tiny moon or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of people voting to name it Xena and Gabrielle. Because <laughs> at the time, Xena was a real big show. But it, I guess that vote failed, unfortunately. They lost the vote. But that would have been cool to have like a fictional character instead of, you know, more like a Zeus or something like that. But it was just so I figured if, if I ever win that, I'm going to go back on that and be like, okay, we still need that Xena out there. So that's what I would name it. Well, as a bonus for downloading and running Bionic on your personal computer, um, you can get a really cool uh, screensaver. Oh, yeah. Here's the thing. I got a Chromebook, and I tried (laughs) for like an hour to get this screensaver to work. I wanted to like maybe open it in a link, like in my browser, and see if I could just use it that way. I just... I just couldn't figure it out. But if you yeah. have Linux or Windows <laughs> running on your computer, you will get access to the screensaver and it's interactive and you see a lot of graphics, including this bar chart, which is a feature of radio pulsar searches and it analyzes it in real time 
and it plots the current power spectrum. So when the frequency bank lights up, like in a bright white, the signal is significant and it could indicate a pulsar. It was pretty hilarious. We were out at a cafe earlier Uh, having some coffee and I'm sitting there, you know, taking some notes for tonight's episode and Ether was taking some notes or so I thought, but (laughs) no, she was actually the whole time she was just trying to get the whole time. (laughs) It was hilarious. Like, oh, how those notes going? She's like, notes? (laughs) What notes? I haven't taken any notes yet. I'm like, are you you still messing with that screensaver? I I had read and I was actively researching. I just hadn't taken any notes. I think she was just super excited about the screensaver. Uh, It was. It has like this celestial sphere and you can turn like on and off the constellations and it shows you in real time where the telescopes are pointed it looks totally awesome actually Uh, to be fair because they're using three telescopes for this project they have in the northern hemisphere the green bank observatory in the southern hemisphere they have the parks observatory and then they have visible light observations from the automated planet finder and i think that's also in the northern hemisphere so using data from all of these um, observatories, telescopes, in fact, a third of their funding is to buy telescope time. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, $100 million, a third of that goes to buying time to do research. Dang, I guess it's expensive to get that telescope time. I, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> who, who collects that money? Can I invest in that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine it's really expensive to like maintain. Yeah. To just maintain the tells and have the staff or, and so forth. Or they can collect the money and not maintain it at all. Like apparently what they did at the Arecibo Observatory. Really? Which they clearly didn't maintain because I see. the cable snapped. <laughs> no maintenance going on there, right? I don't know. So I was looking for recent news. What's going on in the world of um, Breakthrough Listen? And... While I was doing that, I found that they have a prize foundation where they award money for different things. So I guess all of the money isn't going towards telescope time. And they announced they're going to support a big picture science podcast in a three-year commitment. And it will be hosted by astronomer and author Seth, Seth Shostak and produced by the SETI Institute. So it will focus on connections between... It will focus on connections between the latest science and technology research, and their particular field of interest will be the question of extraterrestrial life. Hmm. Podcast, very sciencey about extraterrestrial life and what's going on out there as far as the science and technology. It'll talk about the breakthrough initiative programs. So you did a little bit of research on this signal. I read about it briefly. The signal we're talking about is the BLC1 signal, which is the only candidate so far that um, looks like it might be an anomalous or a techno signature that they found from Breakthrough Listen that like was, you know, they've found certain signals, but this is like the signal. Let me scroll. This is way, way down on my notes. So let me go ahead and. Scroll down. I'm like only halfway through my notes here. I might I might call it quits and do the rest uh, as a as a bonus episode. Maybe because... we should do the BLC one as a bonus then. No, no, let's do the BLC one and maybe end it there because um I don't know. Well it's not BLC one's not gonna be a whole episode worth of material. 
That's true. Okay. That's true. I found it. Breakthrough Listen Candidate 1 was observed during April and May in 2019 from Pro- Proxima Centauri, our closest star. What? Bum, bum, bum. All right. What do you got on this one? Well, I have more on the side of what scientists think now. So how they've analyzed the data since then and the opinion of a couple of different researchers. Okay. That's what I did it on. Do you have an overview of any more about the signal? Oh, sure. I can go over the signal. Yeah, yeah. go over the signal. So the, the signal frequency was 982.002 megahertz, and it was detected for about 30 hours total. The Doppler shift was inconsistent with what would be caused by the movement of Proxima B. In other words, it has an unusual and unexplainable frequency drift, which suggests an artificial source. That's not something that happens naturally in this case. Now, they say that it's nothing, that it was just noise or whatever, and it's super unlikely for life to be on our nearest star. And even in the article, I found some probability like, you know, negative 10 to the power of whatever. It's like, yeah, it's so unprobable that it's not going to happen. And like I said earlier, it's like Occam's razor and probabilities and all this stuff people throw around to prove stuff. But I disagree because probability and stuff can be useful, but it doesn't define what's actually there. If you, like, if, if you flip a coin 100 times in a row and get heads every time, your theoretical chance of getting heads on the next flip is? Zero. 50%. <laughs> it's always 50%. But that doesn't tell you what the next coin flip is going to be. You won't know until you flip it. It might land on its side. You don't know. But there's no way to say the reality of the next flip. You can say there's a 50% chance, but that doesn't tell you what it's actually going to be, right? So you can't use all this math and these philosophical ideas to say, well, they're probably not there, so therefore they're not there. No, no. You have to go there and observe them to know whether or not they're there. And that is really poor reasoning to say, we don't like this signal because there's probably no aliens there. Like, how about you talk about the signal that you actually saw, right? Without worrying about the probability of whether or not the signal was there because you got the signal, right? So that was my idea as far as like their, their way. One of their ways of debunking it was, yeah, there's probably not aliens there. So we don't have to worry about it kind of a thing, right? So the signal itself is pretty much everything that they're looking for in an ET signal. It meets all of their criteria. It was in the same place for hours. It was not a mobile source on Earth because it would have moved around. It would not have been stationary in the sky. Like, you know, if you have like a satellite or some sort of broadcast or something that moves with the horizon kind of thing. We talked a little bit about how they rule the stuff out. One downside to the signal is they didn't detect it with enough data or resolution to see if there was any modulation in the signal. It's just a very, very basic capture, almost like almost like the wow signal. They they pretty much got some basic data on the signal, but they don't have like a hard or they don't have a very detailed look at the actual data. So anything we argue about as far as what it is is pure speculation. And the reason for that that I found is that um it was uh they were piggybacking on somebody else's research. So they were just collecting data that somebody else was collecting, and that's why they couldn't get um, better data for this one. So that's that's the I like 
I didn't have much time to look into this one because I thought Ether was going to do this signal because I thought it was like pretty interesting, but she didn't. So at the very, very last minute, that's remember I said I was taking notes up until like the last minute. This is what I was taking notes on, but I didn't have time to do a deep dive into Some it. Some of us were busy trying to make screensavers work. Okay. I know. Yeah. It's a very important job. Mm-hmm. So that's the little bit I have on it. Um, I'm convinced that this is something worth looking at and that it's not nothing. It's possible that it's anomalous, but I didn't have enough time to look into it myself to have a hard opinion on it, if that makes sense. But I do think it's very, very interesting. And from what I've seen, I don't necessarily dismiss it. But then again, I'm not a scientist. What do you have? It was detected a while ago. It's not like it was detected yesterday or last year. So now, after it's been leaked to the press... You know, like we talked about earlier. Yes, this one was leaked to the press before. The press yeah, <laughs> before they were able to do their analysis. Yeah. Now they've had time. There's been a lot of publications. People have been able to turn it over in their heads, kind of figure things out. And by people, I mean, you know, astrophysicists, professors of astronomy, scientists. Because I've seen a lot of speculation online and people using pseudoscience. But in my heart, I trust academia. So I had some information. There was a professor of astronomy and astrophysics, and he's actually a member for the Center of Exoplanets and Habitable Worlds at Penn State. His name is Dr. Jason Wright. And he just had like this whole website with like pages and pages of information, scientific information about the BLC1 signal and what he thought and what made it anomalous and the conclusions that he had come to about it. And he does talk about how unique the signal is and how it does meet the criteria that they're looking for for extraterrestrial life for that radio signal. Because I think it was a radio, radio signal. Yeah, it was a radio signal. Not a laser signal. So he also studies stellar atmospheres, which I find Fascinating. How can you know the composition of an exoplanet that's however far away? I mean, Proxima Centauri is like four light years. So we're talking way further than that. We can be like, yeah, there's water over there. Yeah. Like, how? Pretty wild stuff, (laughs) right? It's really crazy. It's awesome. Oh, that's kind of like Neptune. Oh, that's a terrestrial planet. (laughs) That is amazing to me. Anyways, so they have these detectors pointed out into space and they kind of work with an on-off system. Like it's pointed, it's not pointed. It's looking for data, it's on and it's off. So it's a problem if you have a very weak signal and it's a weak signal that's being detected when it's not pointed there, when when the signal is off, because that implies that it might be some sort of interference or background um, or, or a technological glitch. And the radio spectrum is full of these false positives. It takes a lot of time for them to sort and ID them. Um, but this, like I said, this signal passes the test, but still the teams working on it think that it's a 99.9% chance that it's just this radio frequency interference. Um, like you said, there's the whole thing with the drift, if it is coming from somewhere else, you know, oh, I was, okay, I'm going to interrupt myself. 
because I was reading, someone was arguing that because of the way that it's drifting, which is unusual, if it was a signal of extraterrestrial life, it didn't necessarily have to be coming from Alpha Centauri. It could actually have come from somewhere else. And they had like a candidate and they thought maybe it was like an exomoon. And they were trying to explain how, you know, the different signals and the drift and when it all came together, they're like, it could be an exomoon from this other system. Right. And so the argument that, oh, well, there's no life out there and, you know, Proxima Centauri or whatever it is, you know, well, maybe there's life over there instead. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe, maybe I read this too, maybe there's transmitters over there and alien life is actually bouncing data off of those transmitters towards us, you know, kind of piggybacking. Right. That's one thing that people have speculated about is that uh, extraterrestrials may send a network of satellites or relays essentially to different places in the galaxy to help transmit their signals. Like if they know we're here and like they're aware of our presence, but they're not that technologically advanced. They're just technologically advanced enough to send out this network and to bounce a signal to us knowing that we're looking, knowing that we would be looking there specifically because it's the closest system to our planet. Right. So very intelligent life looking for us. Yeah. So we look for them. I also saw, I don't know if you're going to mention this, but one idea that it could have have had something as far as the drift goes, it could have something to do with gravitational lensing, which could account for that. But I I didn't have to, again, did not have time to look into that. Uh, And a lot of this stuff is super sciencey. Like it requires more (laughs) than what I have. I had, I was telling agent Anderson, I had this terrible dream last night that I was being forced into a PhD program and I haven't done calculus in 20 years. Like I'm so rusty when it comes to all this physics stuff. I was just, oh, just trying to look at this information. Like I had to do derivatives Mm -hmm. in calculus. In your dream. In my dream. And I'm trying to like work out these problems. (laughs) Like I woke up sweating. I'm like, no, (laughs) no, my job's enough. I don't need to go back to school too. Uh, way too old for school. Well, I never did derivatives in the first place, so <sighs> you're one step ahead of me on that. <laughs> oh, I can't wait till uh, Agent Redacted starts doing calculus and comes to me for help. Yeah. And maybe that's why I've been having these uh, these dreams, because it's coming. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you'll pick it up. I'm <laughs> it's sure you'll, coming. He's I'm already, sure you'll remember all that stuff. He's already doing like pre-algebra and stuff. I can't do the statistics. He does all the statistics, and I have never took that, so... Yeah. Anyways, um, so like you said, they were piggybacking on someone else's experiment, but they also, other telescopes were operating at the same time, and they looked at that data as well, and they found at the same time as the signal was being detected, there were 60 total similar signals with similar drifts across different range frequencies, some that just mirrored the BLC-1, and the, they think the way these signals were interacting might have created a false positive. So 
Were these signals all coming from Proxima Centauri or were these similar signals coming from different directions? I think they were all coming from different directions. And the thing... Because that's, that's, that's an important detail for me. Well, the thing that's interesting to me is you have these complicated computer algorithms which are doing these sorting. Yeah. Right? And they took these 60 similar signals and they remove them mm-hmm. as candidates, as probable candidates. And then they took this one signal, which was very similar to all these other signals, and for some reason pinged it. Mm-hmm. Said, let's take another look at this. And they had to go back and like visually inspect the data. And I'm really curious. I was trying to look up how they did it because in a couple articles, they said, well, they went back to to the original data and they visually inspected it. How do you do that? There's so much data. Do you like print something out you know, from the printer and just yeah. look at the... Well, it depends on how the data was recorded, really. I know, but, but still. As far as that goes, um, as a radio amateur myself who has spent some time looking a- across their frequencies, there are a lot of very, very similar signals out there. We're talking about radio frequencies here, radio signals they're all fairly similar in some way or other. So that's not surprising that you might find similar signals, but um, that you'd have to look at the exact data in order to make a determination for that myself to see exactly what the similarities were to see if it's something that could happen by chance or if it's so similar that it's basically the identical signal spread across different places in the sky, which as you said, would indicate that it was probably some sort of, False signal, but well, they did find four similar instances with the same frequency and drift rate from other days of their observing campaign, and they were similar no matter which way the telescope was pointed. Okay, now that's kind of weird. Yeah, that is so. If that's true, and they're not just making it up to cover up a signal, because you know, this is a conspiracy podcast. <laughs> but yeah, if that's true, that does scream some sort of equipment malfunction or something, right? Well, they so one explanation was it was some sort of system here on Earth with a changing frequency. And they don't know what that could be because it's it's almost like it was increasing over time and and that would account for like the drift rate. Yeah. And it's like, well, maybe it's something here on earth and it's just changing frequency and that's why it looks like things are in motion and it's moving to the earth towards yeah. the earth, but it's not. Well, and, and also just to just to I guess tell remind everybody or whatever, if you're not familiar with radio signals, like literally everything can throw off a radio signal. If it can conduct electricity, it can theoretically throw off a radio signal. So there's all kinds of stray radio signals flying around all the time. Yeah, it's just, it's there's so much, I'm going to call it just junk. <laughs> yeah, there's a just lot. Just junk out there. There's you, a lot of radio junk. Yeah. yeah, and so these programs are amazing. Like, there's so much data. It's being fed into these computers. You have this network across the globe of people working together to analyze these problems, to provide the computing power that's needed to look at these million stars. Yeah. And not just the computing, but I mean, just the people who come up with this stuff, like it just boggles the mind, the scientists behind these things. How did they figure out how to detect a light bulb? How far away you set? I mean, I don't even remember like who figures this stuff out, man. This is some pretty, 
pretty mind-boggling stuff. That's, well, what's what's that quote about standing on the shoulders? Yeah, standing on the shoulders of giants. Giants. Uh, that was I, Newton, I, right? I think that's part of it. Right, like, yeah. We have all of this technology and information readily available. You go to school, you go to university, and there's just just so much. Yeah. For you to learn that's that's already been discovered, so you can use that like as a building block for your own ideas. Yeah. It just fascinates me the stuff they're able to discover. Like, you know, even with like I mentioned before, with like just the Doppler shift, what have they been able to discover just using the Doppler shift in astronomy? It's you know, like the age of the universe or you know, stuff like that. It's just crazy. Yeah. Yeah, totally. But it is. It took a genius to realize you could do that with the Doppler shift. You know, I wouldn't have thought of that. But there's. I won't get into the Doppler shift. If, you, if anybody asks you a question about astronomy, just answer Doppler shift, because chances are you could use it in that context. <laughs> it's like on the Big Bang Theory when when Sheldon dresses as the Doppler effect. Oh yeah, that was awesome. Oh my God, <laughs> he's going around making noises at people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Doppler effect. <laughs> 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 Yeah, it's a pretty funny episode. Oh, uh, it's a good show. Yeah, I enjoyed it. All right. So is that what we have on the, the BL1 signal? Yeah, I was kind of arguing from the from the skeptical side of things, but a lot of people think it is another wow signal. Yeah. They I was think of it sort as a wow of, signal. I was sort of arguing from that wow signal perspective, but like I said, I really don't know enough about it and I didn't do enough of a deep dive to like come out on a strong opinion and say, this is an anomalous signal. But um, I don't know, from what I read, it does seem like it has some potential there. But I like how it meets the qualifications right? for what they're looking for. There's like four qualifications and they're like, well, yeah, it does match all these. Yeah. Right here, these four, it's like the only signal we've ever gotten that was a candidate. Right. So even if it turns out to be a false positive, at least it's a, at least it's a result. Right. And we're talking about, they have to, like we were mentioning earlier, they have to sift through so much data. I'm excited if there's a time that comes within my lifetime where they discover, or they get, let's say quantum computers running where you can, instead of, well, basically like, you know, in the eighties, you had a pocket calculator you thought was pretty nifty. And then, you know, they came out with the Atari 2600 and you thought that was pretty nifty. And nowadays you could run that on like anything, you know, like my agent, uh, agent redacted was saying how like you can run the original doom, you know, doom one. Yeah. You can run that on like literally anything that has a screen nowadays. Whereas back in the day, that game took like a fairly decent PC to run, you know? So the day when the computing power gets so good that you can analyze this data much, much quicker. So you can put in different criteria to look for signals, Right. So instead of being very, very restrictive, you could be, well, you could be very, very restrictive and put a different set of data points in, right? Because looking at this, one of the things that I think is that they're probably filtering out good candidates, not because they want to, but because they have to be as restrictive as possible because of the limits of computing power, basically. So they have to only go for what they believe to be the very, very best signals, but they may be missing out on some signals that are interesting, you know? So I am I, excited about the prospects of better computing power to where you can go back and go over the data again with different criteria. I think the artificial intelligence sort of idea too, 
is going to change these algorithms because instead of people going back, like you said, instead of people looking or these algorithms, which are very limiting, you have a system that's learning from itself mm-hmm. how to detect these signals, what to look for. So if you feed it in what you want, those criteria that you want, and then it can start refining itself. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff. So we're going on. Oh yeah. Enough. <laughs> probably I probably cut some of this, but right now we're at about two hours and I am sick and I'm tired. So I think I'm gonna do the rest. I have some more notes I want to get through, but I'll probably do that for a bonus episode because um it's just really too much to get through right now. And like I said, I'm I don't know if you can hear it. I think I'm starting to lose my voice already, anyways. So I don't know how much longer I got. But so I'll probably cut it cut it short right here and do the rest on a bonus episode. Because there, there's a ton of stuff we didn't talk about. Like, for example, the oh my god particle. Are you aware of this agent ether? If I am coming down with what you have, I'm going to be really, really sad. It's not that bad. You just cough a lot. It's really, that's my only symptom is a lot of coughing. Mm. I don't feel that sick. I'm probably lethargic, you know, loss of energy. No fever, no aches and pains, no nothing. Just my lungs are coffee. That's it. So hopefully you don't get it. But if you do, anyways, have you heard about the oh my God particle? It's pretty cool stuff. So that that and some other stuff, maybe I'll talk about on the bonus episode because we've gone way too long for me. And uh, that's about all I got for tonight. So thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Keep it strange. <laughs>